0: Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees, plus other useful things we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do. Hi, I'm Kirsh Amlani, I'm a competition and regulatory lawyer in BBC Legal. Welcome to our first episode of Not All Lawyers Career Changers, a new mini-series where we're looking at changing careers into the law. I remember at law school studying alongside people who had come from different careers and switched into law and thinking when they would answer a question in class or talk about careers that they brought a whole other perspective that hadn't occurred to me or the students like me who had come straight from uni. We just didn't have the same life experience. And seeing them bring that breadth of knowledge to their studies gave me the sense that my world was actually quite small by comparison. But changing careers when you're already working is a huge step and a massive challenge. Today I'm with Muktiya Singh, who's an employment law barrister and social mobility campaigner at Garden Court Chambers. He had a successful career for 20 years as a police detective before starting at the bar at 40 and becoming an advocate in employment tribunals. But it took him some time to get there.
1: I would say that I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living until I was 35. I left school when I was 16. I'd worked since primary school age. I would worked on a farm, paper rounds, working in restaurants, cleaning dishes, etc. So work's pretty much a way of life. The only ambition my father had for me really was that I find a job in an office. I fortunately found one in the civil service and I worked for the Inland Revenue as it was then because I like popular occupations. And a couple of people that I worked with had joined the police and one of them told me about police cadets which sounded like great fun Mm -hmm. and the the natural thing to do after being a police cadet was to become a police officer because you automatically go through and so I did and that's why I became a police officer it certainly wasn't something that I anticipated I'd be doing when I was younger, if anything, I've probably anticipated being on the other side of the law.
0: At what point in your career did you decide that being a police detective wasn't for you and actually you wanted to pursue the law? How did that come about? I think
1: a number of things just lined up at the same time. I did my inspector's exam and I've got a very high mark. I think I got probably the highest mark in the country. And it did make me think back to school when my teachers were telling me how wasteful I was because I I didn't really behave when I was in school. But it did make me think that perhaps intellectually I do have some strengths and perhaps it's not being used to its best ability. And I picked up a law book, a colleague of mine, he booked in a law book and it was a revision book on administrative law. And I just picked it up and I just really enjoyed reading it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. I loved I love the politics side of it, but I also love the the fact that there was no answers to things and they were just, you know, you're looking for to solve problems through arguments. I just thought it was fantastic. And so I thought, yeah, law is for me. Also, upon reflection, I'm quite an independent person and that's not necessarily a, a good trait to have. In an organisation such as the police, and also, as strange as it seems, I used to read obituaries and be very impressed by people that have had two careers. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, I've had a pretty good career here. I'm doing all right, done all right, banged up for food crooks, <laughs> looked after a few victims, enjoyed it, been quite successful. Wouldn't it be great to be good at something else? And so, all, all those things really made me decide I'm going to study law. And almost straight away after st- starting to study law, particularly when people started to say it's too hard to get to get to the bar become a solicitor, and knew the bar was for me.
0: You seem to really enjoy the challenge. And I mean, when you say about picking up an admin law textbook and really, really enjoying it, that tells me that you really like the difficult stuff, because that wasn't my first reaction to administrative law, I have to say. But I also wondered, obviously you talked about studying when you were younger compared to studying when you were later on, and your approach sounds like it was very different. What changed in you?
1: Completely different approach. To school, In school, it, I, I was, I was so wasteful and disrespectful of education and learning, and the opposites of tr- the opposite was true. And I think that happens when you get older, you you become. A lot more focus it's important to remember I made a lot of sacrifices and in fact the family made a lot of sacrifices when you decide to study there's the financial sacrifice but also time because you're still working full-time so all your spare time is for studying you, you, you don't want to make those kind of commitments and sacrifices and have that kind of impact on your family life if, if you're not really focused. on And so you just have that focus. My eldest was born just as I started studying.
0: Yeah, that definitely resonates. And I, I do think studying later on in life, you have much more appreciation of kind of how valuable the time is, I suppose. But I mean, to juggle a full-time job doing what you were doing, plus studying full-time, plus... You know, having a newborn child sounds like it was basically having three jobs rather than even two at the same time. I mean, how did you manage that at the time?
1: Oh, and I would say four four jobs as well because I did actually get involved with a charity as well, and just to, <laughs> to add, things add more things to, to the mix. <laughs> and, and, and but as you go towards the end of your legal studies. Then you're starting to think about pupillage and that is almost a fifth job then to try and apply for pupillage. I think one of the most important things to do when you're planning is to just strip away things that aren't helping you with your objectives. Now, I loved sport and and I still love sport and I love cricket and I used to watch cricket and it's always a test match on somewhere across the world. And it's such a – and I love it. I still love it, but I don't watch it now. And But things have to go. I ended my subscription with Sky Sports, sadly. I should say to the BBC, uh, uh, obviously (laughs) other sports providers are out there. You can still listen to TMS. Yeah, Yeah, I still do, actually, uh, sometimes. So things like that have to go. And you have to be really ruthless with your time. And things like your holidays, your lunch breaks, you just have to manage those to study. So I used to just get up about five in the morning. I used to think that early at the time, but I get up <laughs> early now anyway. But get up at five, Get try and get a 40-minute session in. Everything was 40-minute sessions for me. Um, get a 40-minute session in the morning, get a 40-minute session in on the train. Um, it's be really difficult studying law on the early morning train to work when everyone else is sleeping and snoring around you. And then try and get a 40 minute in at lunch and then 40 minute when you're going home. And then I'll spend time with the kids until they go to sleep and then back at it till late into the evening. And that would be my routine. Uh, And yet with weekends, it is more intense. I was trying to get an average 20 hours of studying in per week when I was doing my law degree.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's amazing that you managed to squeeze it in. Did you feel like it was a risk that you were taking by making these sacrifices and edging towards a career in law?
1: I wasn't that confident that I would do well in law. i wasn't that confident that I' would be successful in the degree. I think many of us suffer from imposter syndrome, and we query whether we are bright enough to do things or good enough to do things. So there was that risk that at the end of all this, I would not succeed, not pass my law degree in many ways. you dumb down in the police. your vocabulary goes down for it, for instance, and that was a real challenge that studying law. And I, and, I, and I hear this from a lot of students that come and shadow with me is that they're, you know, they're worried they won't be able to understand words that lawyers use, etc. So I started a vocabulary book, you know, something that probably my law teacher in school told me to do. You know, I did that in my late 30s and I started writing a vocabulary book of common words that were coming up that I didn't know what they mean. <laughs> still still happens. <laughs> so it was it really is entering into the the unknown. The thing that made me less concerned about the risk was how much I was enjoying it. Despite being, you know, really tired at times Whenever I got stuck into the books, I was really enjoying it.
0: It's interesting because I suppose it's probably a bit of a cliche that police detective might become a criminal barrister. But I noticed that obviously you do employment and and commercial. Did you know at that point that that's what you wanted to do?
1: I definitely wanted to do employment and I did have an interest in public law. In my first year applying for pupillage, I wasn't successful. I came very close, got to final interviews and waiting lists, etc. But I didn't get there My success was, if you want to call it success, well, I call it success, getting interviews is a success, was more in employment firms. And so the next year I expanded it a little bit in terms of my areas I was interested in, but it included employment. But in the third year, and this is advice from someone in the University of Law where I was studying, to use my police experience Mm -hmm. to try and get my foot in the door. So I then started applying to more common law type chambers And demonstrating an interest in crime. How genuine that interest in crime was, I would say I can't remember now. (laughs) (laughs) However, where I did start my pupillage, they did a criminal pupillage. So loads of advocacy, loads of criminal work. It was fantastic. It was great grounding. Great experience for the bar, but it wasn't an area I wanted to go into, so I, I came away from that
0: quite quickly. And how did you find the process of getting a pupillage more generally as someone who came into the law later in life? Did you find that your experience was valued from you know, having another career? Because I think, from the point of view as of a solicitor, often when you come across people in law firms, I think partners and recruiters seem to really value people with skills from other careers, whether they've been a scientist or worked in the music industry or been a soldier. I've met people in kind of all sorts of careers, it seems to be sort of an asset. And I wondered if it's the same at the bar. Do people see it that way?
1: Perhaps now this. Seeing it more in that way, but when I was applying for pupillage, and there there are a few of us around who are career changers. I've tended to find when I was looking at chambers that it would be unusual for people to be coming as a career change. There there might be some people who've done maybe, you know, five years, maybe a little bit longer doing something and and coming across. But someone who, in effect, would be 40 joining the bar was and probably still remains quite rare. And how
0: did you feel in that situation?
1: I felt that my chances were low. (laughs) I felt my chances were low. Uh, Some, I think, were intrigued (laughs) <laughs> and called me in. But also I think objectively probably wasn't a bad applicant as well. But ultimately it's whether you're prepared to take a risk with someone who's different. I think more and more chambers are are looking to do that. But someone gave me some great advice and that was try and apply to chambers that are taking on more than one pupil because they, they might just play safe with one and they might just take a punt with you. But the thing that turned it for me, and I had I think I it must have done 50 applications, loads of second round interviews, I think I was on four or five waiting lists, so I knew I was close. But in my third year, my my outlook just completely changed. It reminded me of an interview you and I were talking about that you did in one of your previous episodes. My outlook just changed in interview. And whilst I got less interviews for I don't know what reason, I only got three interviews, but I got through them all.
0: How did your outlook change? What what do you mean? Because I think you're referring to the episode with Vebov where he talked about making sure you find the right firm for you in terms of law firms and how it was very much a two-way street and you had to interview them as much as they were interviewing you and you would only really fit in if you found the firm that matched your values.
1: And I think he's just so spot on. So rather than applying for pupillage or applying for whatever job you're doing, Thinking you've got to be like them and show them how you would fit into them. Just be yourself, be comfortable with yourself, and then you'll find the right chambers. You'll find the right job. And I was much more relaxed about whether I got a pupillage or not. I, w- I was much more philosophical. My father had passed away not that long ago, which I think helped to focus on what's important in life. And I thought, well, you know, if I don't get pupillage, it's not really the end of the world. And this is who I am. I think I'm all right. I think I'll be pretty good at being embarrassed now. If, if they want me, then fine. And so all my nerves completely went as well. So I didn't have nerves during those interviews at all. And that confidence, displaying confidence is really important in advocacy. And that's generally what you're looking for during a pupillage interview but have you
0: always kind of been quite confident has that been quite a natural thing or did you have to work on it particularly when you're in the bar at an unfamiliar environment
1: in my outlook on life i'm confident as you can see i'm i'm a sick and i take my faith seriously i i would say in broad terms in life there's nothing to worry about (laughs) everything happens for a reason and you may or may not want to try and work out that reasons it's not that necessary but you just better go with it and be internally optimistic and confident in yourself and be humble in that there are greater things going on around us. And uh, once you're confident enough to think, well, you know what, whatever happens in life, it's all good. Then that in itself gives you confidence as a person, as an individual. That's not to say I don't get nervous. I I get nervous doing these types of interviews. I was nervous before this. I get really nervous talking in schools. I find that's a really tough crowd. I get nervous in court. But overall, the bigger picture is much further than the talk to the school, whether I can peel a certain case or looking at someone else's skeleton and thinking, wow, they're so much better than me or... uh or looking back at your skeletons that you did a few years ago and squirming and thinking, oh God, I'm terrible. You know all those kind of moments you have at the bar. But generally, you just got to think: look, we all feel this imposter syndrome. We none of us are perfect. We're all trying. Yeah, you know, we're trying our best. Let's not be harsh on ourselves, okay? So we're nervous.
0: And on the more practical side, I was wondering how financially you found it to give up your work and and start again, effectively sort of at the bottom of a different career.
1: Yeah, it was. It it was it was difficult. I, I found actually just in, when I was thinking about what I might talk about today, I found uh, an old plan I did, and it was mapping out various years of when I when I could get pupilage, how far I would be in the police, what my pension would be worth, what roughly my outgoings would be at various stages for various years, and I had in mind. So then I would calculate how much you'd get for pupilage. And then what you'd expect to earn in your first year, what you expect to earn in your first five years. And then I I worked out, well, if I get through the first two years, I I would be fine. I mean, we live quite a simple life anyway. So I thought we could do it. Financially, I think you know we could do it. And we worked really hard. My wife worked as well in the evenings. She worked in a supermarket when I would come home in the evenings. We worked and saved really hard. Because we were thinking, you know, with legal aid coming from, I'm just doing legal aid, then there's not going to be a lot of money for the first few years. And so let's just try and get as much behind us as we can. We didn't buy a house to the third year of my law degree. So year one was child. Year two was another child. Year three was house. <laughs> year four, actually, I had a shoulder operation. Um, there's always same going on. But there there is a huge risk being self-employed. But if you're able to get into the bar... And and get tenancy. Whatever barristers m- may tell you outside of those that do legal aid work, it is quite well paid. Other things, of course, helped me. I got a scholarship. That's amazing that I got a scholarship through Lincoln's Inn, and I-, I won some awards at university. They all they all helped pay for a few books. Mm-hmm. So that that's all good and obviously helped help the confidence. But you know, you've probably picked up by try to turn things into a positive. Um, I developed a disability while I was at the bar course. Um, a problem with my uh upper arms, and I did have to defer my studies because it, it got so bad, but then I, I learned how to manage it. But unfortunately, or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, I couldn't continue with my police duties, mm-hmm. uh, and hence I was pensioned off, which helped me make a, a decision about – because before I was thinking, well, okay, so if I finish the bar course, what do I do? Do I take a year out, do pupillage? Wait till I finish my 30 years of the police, get my pension. What, what would I do? Do I wait till I've done my 30? So it was a problem I didn't really have to deal with because a decision got made for me.
0: And a few years down the line, I noticed that you've started your own scholarship and, and you're quite vocal about social mobility into, into the bar. Why is that important to you and how do you go about helping that?
1: Well, I mean, something I noticed at the, at the bar is that obviously it doesn't reflect society. Nowhere near No, absolutely nowhere near does it reflect society. And it made, it made me think that coming from my background is, is something that, something important that comes to the table. And I think there's probably people out there far brighter than I am or was who wouldn't even think about coming to the bar or even think about doing a law degree. And so I come up with this idea of. Uh, not just providing mentoring but providing financial support to someone from a disadvantaged background and try to run that once a year. I've also got an interest in Sikh jurisprudence and have good friends in the Sikh Education Council. And so uh, I run the scholarships, the Guru Nanak Social Mobility Scholarships with them every year. And it's run like an essay competition.
0: What's the effect of the, of the schemes? Have you, have you seen people come through it with the scholarships and, and how's that been? I'm
1: so pleased. Yeah, I'm so pleased to see people coming through. In fact, uh, one of them is uh, a pupil in my chambers. And I have a one of my goals every year is to have one student that gets over the line who I think perhaps might not have was always good enough, but might not have got over the line if I wasn't able to help that individual.
0: And what kind of advice do you give them, and what sort of things would you say to someone who's in that position now? Well, I
1: do give lots of advice, but <laughs> I think one—I think something that's maybe they—they they might hear conflicting points around, or they might be personally conflicted—is about being yourself. I think it's really important that you remain as you are when the bar, whether they like it or not, but the bar are, are trying to get more diversity. There's no point getting that diversity if you're just going to be like them, right? they want diversity, give them diversity. Don't hide your accent. Don't hide what you find interesting. If you don't find it interesting to go to opera and you would rather go to a particular concert or whatever young people do these days, (laughs) then just be yourself. Speak the way you speak. Dress the way you want to dress. The bar probably needs you. The law needs you more than you need them. If you uh, like to use the analogy of an England football team where all the players only come from Kent and we don't play any international games. So we might think we're brilliant and we may be, well be brilliant, but we won't really know until we start selecting from across the country i
0: mean that's a great analogy i really like that and it sounds like obviously your faith is, is a big part of you and, and and you it sounds like you also bring that to work i read that you recently acted on a case that involved discrimination against a sick guy from uh, new zealand can you tell me a bit about that case i'd just like to end on hearing about that
1: well he, he he's just a fantastic client i have to say he was out traveling uh in the uk staying in backpacking places in central london and um decided to get a job in uh, hotels, which as many of the New Zealand and Aussies do. Australians, should I say. And he got knocked back through a HR company, the recruitment company, because they said, oh, you've got a beard, you, you, you can't work where there's food because of your beard. And he was like, well, that's a bit strange. We were able to show that the policy of no beards discriminated against Hicks and it couldn't be objectively justified some clients might say that they're doing it for principle. Or they're not doing it for money. And some of, the, many of them would, would mean that. I mean, this, this guy really did it for the principle. I gave my fee to Carl Said just to completely uh, ensure that it was a good day for six. Mm-hmm. Um, and humanity, I think. I mean, I wouldn't say that I bring my faith to my work in that it's not really what I think and what I believe in a case it's it's all about the client you just you are the mouthpiece for the, for the client so I, I could be defending a, a case such as that or you know my personal views aren't irrelevant that said <laughs> there was obviously a bigger grin on my face
0: yeah. afterwards <laughs> that was Barrister McPiercing Singh. And now I'm with trainee solicitor in BBC Legal, Joanna Pryor. Hi, Joanna. Hello. And you have a particular interest in career changes, don't you? Do you want to tell us where you've come from?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I have been a BBC journalist. And as you say, I'm now a trainee solicitor with BBC Legal. So I'm very much in the middle of my changeover period. (laughs) The last two years, I was working in BBC News part-time and studying full-time. My original degree happened a long time ago and wasn't in law. So I needed to do what most people would call the conversion course, the GDL. And that's one year full time, followed by the LPC, which I also did full time. And I wouldn't have chosen to study full time and work part time. But that was a combination of being lucky enough to have a training contract to work towards. So I had specific deadlines to meet. And then didn't have the financial luxury of being able to study and not work. And I have, as you say, now just started the training contract. So, sort of crawling towards the finish line. <laughs>
0: Well, it's great to have you have you working with us, and also excellent to have you on the on the podcast as well. And I, you could hear Muktia talking about studying and working at the same time, and it sounded incredibly intense and challenging, and like like he juggled a lot. Although he made it sound like he sort of was very organised and planned it. What did you think, and how, how did you get through it?
2: I think everything he said uh, resonated, and I think to some extent, when you decide to make that change, and as he said, it's not just your decision if you're doing it at a later stage in life Uh, you might have a partner you might have children so it's almost a team effort so you sort of have to make it work and I very much knew that but somehow I just needed to make it happen and he spoke about sort of taking 40 minutes here and there where he could to fit in his study and I very much remember doing that sort of lunch breaks that was suddenly an hour that I could devote to studying (laughs) and again you do have to make sacrifices and you do have to miss out on things social things that you would have gone to you suddenly don't have the time for anymore and then even sadly if I'm being completely honest family things that you miss out on as well and again I think he's sort of made reference to the fact that it's almost short-term pain for hopefully long-term gain that part of the calculation when you decide to make that change is the benefits that it will bring to you and then to your family in years to come
0: the other thing i found really interesting about what he was talking about was the idea that he had to make a decision at some point that you know that being being a lawyer was what he wanted to do and he was in some ways forced to do so as well by his kind of his injury and, and stopping working but starting at the bottom at a different career having you know done really well at another career Um, I think is is a really interesting and really brave, it seems like a really brave decision to make.
2: Brave or foolish. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, again, as he said, there were people who said to him, you know, it'll be too difficult, don't. And that sort of gave him the drive to go and do it. I think I experienced a little bit of that. People, when I first sort of started talking about applying for training contracts and what that would mean in terms of the study and qualifications I'd have to cram in in that short period, some people did react, well, that's not really something you can do right now. You know, you have two small children. And I remember just thinking, well, no, I'll just I'll just find a way to make it work. And luckily, my husband was of the same opinion. Um, so I think there is a sort of determination, maybe, that comes with part of that thinking. What was really interesting listening to him speak was the fact that he's quite confident that he enjoyed his previous career and knows that he was successful in what he did, So I think you get a confidence from that. And I think that, again, part of the thinking behind having that change is wanting the stimulation. And so in some ways, it's not that you're happy to be back at the bottom, but you know you've opened yourself up to learning everything and starting from scratch. That's what you're taking on. So I think that helps with any idea of being at the bottom again. But certainly there are there are very amusing moments when I'm very aware of my age compared to my contemporaries. You know, when you're studying your law courses and the coursework is something that you lived through (laughs) or something that you reported on as a journalist. (laughs) And everyone's sort of just looking at this as a historic case, which is quite amusing. And then in my (laughs) current seat in a particular training session about rental. I was the only person who didn't need blockbuster video explained to me <laughs> because I'm someone who used it. <laughs> um, so yeah, there are definitely times when you're very aware of your age, but it's it's amusing more than anything. Yeah. I don't know if going down the solicitor route is different from going uh, down the bar route, but I was really pleasantly surprised at how open to having a mature student everyone seemed to be. And that gave me the confidence to make the change that before I started making proper inquiries, I was more concerned about, well, will anyone want a middle aged beginner? You know, how would an employer view that? And I was sceptical. So it wasn't until I started making inquiries and having conversations that I realised that actually that was something that the profession was open to. And I wasn't going to be laughed at and that I would be a different sort of candidate that was
0: all. I remember in my law school class, there was, there was a guy who was a soldier and who sort of served in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And there was a former journalist like you. And there was someone who'd worked in music as well. And I remember thinking, how are you going how would people compete for training contracts with people like this who have got so much experience and knowledge and skills, and you know all all we've done is literally study and then do a bit of work in the summers, and suddenly we're trying to get the same job, and it felt quite daunting to us being on the other side of that sort of debate. And obviously there aren't as many career changes, but to me it just made complete sense that, that people like you would be picked up and and would be given jobs, and people would see the value in in the skills that you have, and compared to someone someone who was just starting afresh and didn't have that sort of career and, and knowledge.
2: I think you do still have imposter syndrome though. I don't think that ever leaves. And I think I, I don't know, again, if it's just something that's personal to me, but I always worry that because I am that older candidate um, is more expected of me. Should I be doing certain things quicker or better because of my age and my work Mm. history? And yes, in terms of imposter syndrome, I think that's that's something that applies whatever your age. (laughs) My first day at the BBC, at BBC Legal, I introduced myself as a journalist. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know at what point I'll say, oh, yes, I'm actually someone who works in law
0: now yeah you're now a lawyer not a journalist now you're working and you're no longer studying how are you finding that
2: um everyone has been incredibly welcoming and friendly so it's, it's a really exciting time so no i feel really grateful that i've been able to do it i'm really grateful to be where i am right now
0: if you're thinking about changing careers into law like Muktiya and joanna we've posted links to some useful information in our show notes and if you're interested to find out more about Muktiya and the scholarship he's involved with we posted a link to that too In our next episode, we'll be talking to Rachel Bell. She ran a construction company, but wants to be a solicitor. She's currently mid-qualification, all while working as a paralegal and being a parent. She also uses social media and her podcast, The Legal Social Club, to help other career changers. Keep your eye on the feed for that episode and more career changer episodes coming up. You can find more episodes on Apple, Spotify, Acast, and everywhere you find good podcasts. Make sure to like, review, and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And get in touch on Instagram. Just search Not All Lawyers Pod and use the hashtag #NotAllLawyers. This has been Not All Lawyers from the BBC Legal team.